Hey guys, I'm Kelly Wolf, and this is the Flow Podcast. I feel like I have to clear something up. So when people hear the word flow, they always ask me, is this a yoga class or just something that can happen when you're surfing? But this flow stands for finding love over worry. And this podcast is all about the ways that you can have more flow in your life. On the Flow Podcast, I'm going to share my wisdom as a coach, a writer, a speaker, and a mama. I want to give you all the goods so that you can start your flow journey today. All right, let's get started. Okay, I feel like I have such a treat for you, and I'm totally grinning from ear to ear because in my cute little adorable office on the beach is the amazing Libby Moore. She is here with me. We are in a bubble together, I would say. We live in Vancouver. We both live in Vancouver, which she and I will talk about the insane magic that had to happen for us to be living. We joke that she lives across a little waterway from me, and I, my theory is it would be faster. It's called a skidoo in Canada. I grew up wave runner, but they call it skidoo here. So I feel like I could skidoo myself to Libby's house so much faster than we can even drive to each other. Okay, so you guys know that one of the things that I want to do is try to do bios without Wikipedia or without reading a bio. So Libby's over here nodding at me because we're trying not to talk over each other. (laughs) And then I'm going to let her talk in a minute. Okay, so Libby, I'm going to do your bio without reading anything. Okay. All right. So Libby Moore, born in Maryland, grew up in Maryland, and she is one of four kids. Libby went to, this was where I got a little stuck, Endicott College. And it is a all-girls school in Maryland. This is, again, you're going to tell me where I didn't nail it. And a bunch of life happened to her that we will talk about in this podcast, obviously. But what I'm going to tell you is after college, she wanted to be a stand-up comedian. And she moved to New York and started stand-up comedy. I'm looking at her to try to guess. I'm going to stop looking at her because I don't want to know if I got it right or not. So she moves to New York and she wants to write for SNL, I think something like that. And so she starts this kind of attempt at a, at a comedy career and life takes a couple random turns and she gets a job with uh, Maury Povich as an assistant. And then she's obviously amazing at that and leaves that job and works for Jan Winter at Rolling Stone. I feel like I get massive friend awards over here for retaining these, these things. Okay. Then she finishes that part of her life career and goes on to be Oprah's chief of staff for 11 years. And when that chapter ended, she embarked on what she coined the Libby Moore Gypsy Tour. And this is where Libby and I meet each other, kind of right around this moment. And if I am really pulling back that, I feel like it was close to maybe maybe she had been in her Gypsy Tour for a year at that point. And the Gypsy Tour was to reset her stuff. You know, I mean, I think we can all imagine the intensity of all of those jobs. And it was time for her to go back to knowing who she was. And now she is a coach to uh, mostly executives, consultant, speaker. She speaks all around the world. She is globally recognized, but mostly she is my dearest, dearest friend, my call, as I said on my episode one, I always ask people this, I always say, who's your call? 
And Libby, you are one of my calls. One of the things I get asked about the most are recommendations for coaches in different niche areas. I have a coach who I recommend to all parents who have found themselves feeling like they are alone in their parenting journey because their child was born in a way that they didn't expect. Margaret Webb Life Coaching is a true unicorn, you guys. She is a master certified life coach. She is certified nature-based coach. She's a former teacher, but her most important journey and job on this life was being a mother to her 17-year-old son who is on the autism spectrum. She works with parents who feel incredibly alone in their journey with a child that they didn't expect. And she wants to remind those parents that not only are they not alone, but there are things that they can do to bring ease and joy in their life that they may have never considered. I call Margaret a friend. She is a profoundly gifted coach. And if you have found yourself on this journey, I would not hesitate to reach out to her. Go to margaretweblifecoach.com and that is web with two b's and i promise that this will change the journey for you are you celebrating the moments of your life the big and small moments of your life because our friends at 1111 wines believe in just that in fact their tagline is make your moment you guys i've been a fan of 1111 wines for years they are a luxury wine brand They have one of the top winemakers in the world, Kirk Vengay, and they believe deeply in the power of connection. 1111 has so much to offer. You can be a wine club member, which gives you incredible perks, one of which is priority booking in their incredible vineyard house. Guys, I booked it last year and did it to mark a really special occasion in my life, and I will never forget it. So the next time that you want to make a moment in your life, consider giving the gift of 1111 Wines to someone that you love, or give it to yourself. Sign up for the wine club, go to their website at 1111wines.com, and be ready to make your moment. Libby, welcome to the Flow Podcast. Thank you, Kelly. Oh, it's so good to be here in your in your office, actually. And you really, you did a great job. You do get big friend points on that. Thank you for having me on Flow because finding love over worry, you know, that's where we connect. It's all about love, finding love. So thank you for having me here. I'm so happy that you are here. Okay, tell me, did I get it all right? You, the bones are correct. The okay. bones are correct. Um, I have good bones. Yes, you do have good bones. So I started out, uh, grew up on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, went to college. Yes, correct. Endicott College, which was a woman's college at the time. Actually, it's in Beverly, Massachusetts. So outside of Boston. Um, very close though. And now it's a co-ed school. Fantastic college. Very grateful to that. After graduation, I worked in the Salem, Marblehead, Massachusetts area outside of Boston doing a bunch of stuff. Then I went to Boulder, Colorado for two years to ski for a year, which became two years, did all kinds of crazy jobs there. Then at 25, I moved to New York City because, correct, I did want to write for Saturday Night Live. That was my dream. (laughs) Good job on that. And then uh, I think it was like maybe two months after I was there, I got a job as Maury Povich's personal assistant 
and was with him for three years. Then I left. I After leaving, I did try to do the stand-up thing for two years, like sketch comedy, trying to get into Saturday Night Live, like never could get an interview. And then after two years of doing odd jobs, trying to get into comedy, then the Rolling Stone job came up. And I was the second assistant to Jan Wenner, who's the founder and publisher of Rolling Stone, was with him for four years and then went to Oprah, yes, for 11 years as her chief of staff executive assistant. And then did the Libby Moore Gypsy Tour once the show ended and she launched the OWN Network, which I now call the Libby Moore Adventure Tour. Very important because the Roma People's Project, that is something through Columbia University in New York, contacted me and told me that um, Gypsy was a derogatory term to the Roma people. Yeah, I had no idea. So I said, thank you for bringing that to my attention. And now I call it the Libby Moore Adventure Tour. Anyway, and then we met in 2013 when we were both getting our Martha Beck Life Coach training. And here we are. My God. Yeah. And I do. And correct. I'm an executive coach, life coach. I do speaking engagements and launch LoveX Global, which is bringing the energy of love back to business. Oh, which you to me are I want to say queen because you are the queen of that. You know, that's something else I'll talk to you about from my point of view of the power that you have in bringing love back to or into, I wouldn't even say back to, but reminding people of that core value in places where their careers and jobs are so intense. And you have that amazing ability to bring the energy back down to center, back to love. And by the way, before we started this podcast, Libby said, can I say a prayer? And I think at the end of the podcast, I'm going to have you say that because I think Mm. that prayer in particular, I've heard you say it many times over the years, is such a powerful one in general. You know, I think people say to me a lot, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to pray. I don't even know what I'm saying or who am I talking to? That prayer that you do is my, is one of my go-tos, especially when I feel like I don't have the connection or I can't find it. It brings me right back home and it's so powerful. Okay. My first question. So everything we're going to talk about is going to be in the realm of flow in terms of choices that had to be made moments that you had in your life where you had to choose love over fear. And I don't mean that people were sitting there like, Oh, I'm going to choose love. It's more maybe on reflection and how something occurred or how something didn't occur because we stayed in a worry or fear state. But you did mention something that I think would be interesting is you've gone to New York. You, your intention is to um, get into comedy. When you said this stuff happened and I get this job with Maury, what is that stuff? And did it feel like it was a love train for you? Great question. In hindsight, 100%, it was the love train. I never would have understood that at the time. Uh, but in hindsight, yes, it was the love train. Okay, so I moved to New York City thinking, um, my, well, my best friend from college was a writer for David Letterman at the time. She was one of the only women writers, actually, for she was there for six years. And so I thought, well, if Jill can do it, I can do it. If she can write for Letterman, I can write for Saturday Night Live. So I moved to New York. I was actually sleeping on a futon in her studio apartment, okay? <laughs> like kind of a one-bedroom-ish, not really loft type thing. I immediately got a job at a temp agency because I needed to make money. And she was the only person I knew in New York City. After doing random temp jobs, and by the way, I had to answer phones at the Nikai. I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but it's like the stock exchange, but it's the Nikai. And basically I had to wear pantyhose and a skirt. So you know me, like I, that was horrifying enough that I had to wear pantyhose and a skirt every day. I couldn't speak Japanese, like, and you know, Chinese, nothing. Like I was just way 
over my head in that. So I did all kinds of random temp jobs. And then I reached out to my younger sister's best friend's mother was best friends with a woman that was an associate producer at the Mari Povich show. Oh my goodness. Right? Okay. That mm-hmm. long train. I reach out to her, take her to lunch, give her my resume and say, if anything opens up at Mari, will you let me know? They called about a month later and said, Mari's looking for a driver. I said, what's a driver? And they're like, you know, a chauffeur, a driver. <laughs> this is 1992, I think. <laughs> so we're laughing here. She's trying I'm not trying to laugh out so loud. I'm so hard not to talk over you, but I am laugh Like I have tears coming down my eyes laughing because I'm just picturing you. <laughs> Meanwhile, just so people know this, yeah. you had a, a funny dream about being a long haul trucker through your- Not a- Not a- Right? Oh, in real life, so as a kid, I wanted to. It was perfect to. that you got a driving position. Oh, so, okay. When I was a kid, my very first recollection of what I wanted to be when I grew up was the cowboy on the cover of the Kellogg Sugar Corn Pop cereal mm. box. I just saw that cowboy and was like, wow, I want to be that. Like, I want a horse and I want to wear jeans and boots every day. Like, that's what I wanted to be. You know, standing in the grocery store of Acme in Berlin, Maryland. And then the next thing I wanted to be when I think it was about 10 to 12 years old was an 18 wheeler trucker. So yes, I wanted to be, my mother was horrified. You know, she's very like Saks Fifth Avenue, Neiman Marcus kind of gal. But, um, you know, that's what I wanted. I wanted to be on the road. I wanted to meet people. I wanted adventure. So it's kind of interesting Mm, that- The adventure part. Yeah, the adventure came much later in my life, but I got that big time. So- that was the role that was being offered. I said, I'll come in an interview for that job to be Mari's driver. And I met his personal assistant and I met Mari. And the personal assistant, Erica, and I really got along great. We had a great energy. And she said, you know, if we're interested, we'll have you come back to do a test drive. So they called me the next day and said, we want you to pick up Mari, you know, from home, bring him to work. And I said, you know what? Thank you so much. I really appreciate this offer, but I don't think I could commit to a year if if I get the job, I don't think I could really do that for a year. So I'm going to pass. But if something else comes up, please keep me in mind. And it was maybe a month later that Erica got promoted into the promotions department and called me and said, would you like to interview to be Maury's personal assistant? And I went in, interviewed with him and got the job. And I thought, oh my God, like I'm a creative person. I always thought of myself as a very out of the box, artistic, creative person. I'm going to be a comedian. I'm going to make people laugh. I failed typing in college. I did not see myself as an assistant or a secretary, you know, but I thought I need the money and I need the health insurance. So I took the job and he was amazing. And I stayed with him for three years. I mean, first of all, you are a good driver. I will say that. Thank I think you. you, do you enjoy driving? Love Okay. Driving. So that's a funny like breadcrumb to me that that was the entry point, mm-hmm. but the bigger piece of that conversation or that whole story is the energy that you left with his, the gal that ended up hiring you, Uh that was everything. Don't you think? 100%. That's why, because to your point, typing's not your jam, Mm -hmm. right? You've said no to the other job, but yet your energy left such an imprint. Do you think that that's the bigger component or do you think destiny is a bigger component in stories like that? I don't know the answer to that. I I think that's such an interesting thought. Like, are we creating our life or are we stepping into destiny? I don't know. I don't don't know know either. I mean, I'm curious how people perceive that because I think I hear stories like that and I go, it seems like all the things would be that it wouldn't work. Yeah. That wouldn't happen. So now you're working for Maury and it's a great experience and you're happy. How long did it take 
for you to crest the ideas in your head that I'm not built for being a personal assistant, but yet here I am. Well, he was wildly patient with me. I mean, he, he really, I love him so much. And by the way, I did a good job. I, I'm assuming I did, or I would have gotten fired. So I was able to do what I needed to do. And I will say he was one of the best bosses I ever had. The most major thing was I knew I was gay since I was God, eight years old, 10. I don't know. When you first know what that term is, you're not thinking about like, I'm going to date so-and-so. But I knew I was gay from the time I was a a kid. When you get to about fourth or fifth grade, probably fifth grade at that time, you realize, oh, this is not okay. And I'm 55 years old. So this was like in the 70s, I think. 1976, probably, or something. And uh, I realized, oh, when people were saying dyke, faggot, lesbo, oh, that's me, I think, but I'm just going to keep my this quiet. And then you get into sixth grade, seventh grade, people have little boyfriends or little girlfriends. And I thought, okay, I'm not interested in having a little boyfriend. So I'm going to keep this quiet. Then I got to college and I just thought, wow, I know I'm gay, but I will go to my grave with a secret. And as you know, I think I told you this, that in college, even though I was an athlete in high school, knowing that I was gay and thinking I will never be able to tell people this story, I numbed my feelings with food and alcohol. It probably started in 10th grade. 11th. But once I got to college, I blew up. I mean, I I weighed 205 pounds and I was a size 20 at my biggest. My friends were like, hey, like they, I gained so much weight because I was so sad and desperate inside. Like I thought I'm a gay person and no one will accept me or love me as a gay person. I just, that was my belief um, based on society and what you hear people say. So I would stuff it with food and alcohol. Cut to Now I'm 25 years old working at the Maury Povich show. And I think it was a year and a half into that job. And he did a show called Coming Out Strong. And it had five gay women on the show. And I wanted to watch that show. I'm 27. I go into his office and lock the door so no one would see me watching the in-studio feed. I thought if I did it out in the area where everyone's working, they would think, why is Libby so interested in that show? She might be gay. And that was horrifying to me. So I watched it in his office. At the end of the show, I said to myself, 95% of what those women just said, I felt my entire life, I am gay. It was the first time I allowed those words to even be said inside my head. And I came out to one of my best friend's Uh, that weekend and said, you know what? I think that maybe I should be open to maybe, you know, dating women. And she was incredible. And because she was so supportive and loving, that gave me the confidence and courage to open up to my family and friends. And and my whole life changed from that point forward. So talking about finding love over worry, my whole life worrying that if people find out this truth about me, I'll be abandoned, not loved. People will think I'm gross. All this stuff is spinning my head. And thanks to the Mari Povich show and Mari Povich, he helped me to find the love within myself to then have the courage to come out, which changed my entire life. I am so blown away by that story. It's also when you're telling it, I'm thinking destiny. Destiny keeps popping through. Like Mm. I'm almost going to check in on, on that as a theory over and over again. So I don't, you, we don't have to go deep into this if you don't want to, but, um, and I told you I was going to do this, but I, I did reach out to your sister. <laughs> so which li- one? Maureen. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so Libby and I are close enough that I actually kind of feel like I already know your sister, or your family a little bit. I mean, we've been in Vancouver, we've been in lockdown, so we haven't had people come visit, but I'm hoping soon I'll actually get to meet them in person. So when I spoke to her, I think we had a pretty quick rapport and it was pretty fast to be comfortable, but I was curious for her to tell me, and I didn't give too much context. I just said, what are some stories about Libby as a child? You know, what would be the touchstone moments? And and I, I know, I think, I hope she'd be comfortable sharing this, but she said, I think that Libby constantly felt like it was hard because she knew that she was gay, but she didn't feel safe to say that. And that she kind of made it her job to be my mother's protector. Does this all sound 100%. relevant and, and accurate? Mm-hmm. And that she said, but I feel like she was kind of tough, like kind of tough on me and maybe tough on some of our siblings. And I know your relationship with them now. And, and and I know you now, but I wonder, I'm curious to hear, do you recall that feeling? Do you think it was coming from this place of feeling like you, you couldn't tell the truth? Yeah. They called me the standard bear of the family. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm in Aries also. Yeah. I think that once I got to that point of knowing, oh my God, I'm this way, but I'm not allowed, or I shouldn't say this because this apparently is a bad thing or it's a sin in the Bible and all that stuff. I think I didn't know what to do with one. I felt in my head, I felt people won't love me. I'm not okay as I am. The way I was born, we are, there are four kids in our family. I have an older sister, younger brother, younger sister. We are all raised the exact same way. I'm the only gay one in the family. So I just thought, how you're a kid. It's like, how do I deal with these feelings? And wait, am I not okay? Is there something wrong with me? So there probably was like resentment and anger, you know, built up. And I took that out on my brother, my younger brother and my younger sister. You remember that or feeling that way. Yeah. Okay. I I don't think that as a kid, I thought I'm gay. So I'm going to be tough on them at all. I just felt misunderstood and angry. I was angry. But on the surface, I like I had a ton of friends in school. I was my mother's disciple. I would do whatever she wanted me to do. You know, I just wanted her to be happy. What was that for you? Uh, getting love. Because I thought, I think, now I can say this very clearly because I'm an adult and I've been through therapy and all this stuff. But as a kid, I just thought, I think my core belief was if people know who I truly am, then I will not be loved. And I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just being me. So I'm not worthy. I'm not valuable. How do I create value in my family? And in my little head, I think I looked at my siblings and thought, well, I'm not the oldest, the firstborn. That would be Anne. I'm not the only boy, the prince. That would be Alex. And I'm not the youngest, the baby. That would be Maureen. I'm just the second child. It's that classic thing. And my mom always said I was the easiest kid. Like I was just super easy. So if I'm easy and you don't need attention for any reason, and you've got all these other kind of shining siblings, what, what's your what's your value? And I think that in me, I innately sense that at times my mom would need to be emotionally taken care of. And I can do that naturally. And when I paid attention to her and did things for her and made her feel good, I got love. I got, that was, I realized, wow, this is my value in the family. I'm going to emotionally caretake my mom. And then I did it for my friends and then my girlfriends once I came out. And then I built a whole career out of taking care of people. And now I'm a coach. So (laughs) I started at about eight years old. To me, that's so interesting too, about where your personality met something where you could plug it into. Because I think you are naturally, 
in tune and you're so naturally empathic and naturally caretaking of people and that you really did take it to, I would say like the highest degree that we could take something like that on this, on this planet with the work that you've done. But did you find it as a child or in your youth or even in your twenties, was that energy exhausting to you? That output of that plugging in with people? Did it exhaust you ever? Or do you remember? I don't remember. And it was like breathing for me. So it gave, like, did it give you energy or I think it gave me energy. energy? Yeah. And, and it was like breathing. It was a natural thing for me. Do you see it now as a thing? Can you see that sensation of plugging into somebody's energy as a thing? Or does it still just feel like blinking your eyes? Like we don't realize we're blinking our eyes, right? Do you see it as a, as a recognized behavior or is it still just totally second nature? A plug into another person, an understanding of their energy. It's a little of both. So I want to go back for a little bit to say that I do think there were certain things that were just innate in me, like being an empath. I think you're an empath too. You know, there's certain things like that. And because of that whole thing of this, me convincing myself that I was not worthy because I'm a gay person, gay person, and people won't accept me. That was my belief that I had in my head. At age 20 or 21, I tried to end my life in a drunk driving accident. I just thought, what's the point? At that point, I thought, I know I'm gay and I'll never be able, I'll never have the courage to come out. So I'm always like, what's the point? I just remember crying, crying, you know, and it's embarrassing to even say it was driving drunk. It's just, it's where I was at that point in my life. I call it like a subconscious suicide attempt because I didn't go out that night thinking I'm going to kill myself. But ultimately, long story short, my car slams into a tree going around a hairpin turn where I was going too fast intentionally. And I survived that accident. And then it wasn't even another five, six years before I came out. The reason why I say that is because when you, when trauma happens to you, which we've all had some degree of trauma from whether it was your parents got divorced or, you know, you're molested or physically or emotionally abused. There's so many things that happen between birth and 18. I feel like when trauma happens or things like that happen, there's a superpower that's been birthed within you as well. And one of those superpowers for me is being able to read people's energy. I can't read their thoughts, but I can read their energy and tapping into people and almost like psychically in some cases saying, I feel like you're going to get that house and it's going to be and a number will pop up in my head three to five weeks, that kind of thing. So because of the deep pain that I went through in my childhood and even up to, you know, 20, my 20s, something was birthed within me. And I choose to look at it that way. A superpower was birthed within me. There's no question. That moment after you hit the tree and you, you know, wake up the next day, had anything shifted in you? Well, Oh, the police drove me home that night to, to the apartment and my best friend and her boyfriend lived in the same apartment building and, and, you know, the police told them what happened and everything. I was fine. And it was the only time, I mean, I've been driving since I was 16. When I pulled away from my friends that night, the DJ on the radio said, buckle up out there. It's raining cats and dogs and it's not letting up anytime soon. And I just mindlessly clicked my seatbelt in. I never wore my seatbelt. Mm. Since I was 16, it was the 80s. People didn't really do that at the time. But something in me just made me click the seatbelt. I wasn't thinking I'm going to go end my life tonight at all. I was just heading to another bar in another part of town to meet some friends, not even knowing if they were going to be there or not. And that seatbelt saved my life. 
the, the song, the DJ saved my life. It's kind of ironic because mm. the DJ did save my life that night and I clicked in. So now I've completely lost track of. No, I, I was going. asking you too. Well, you're answering that too, but how the next, that next day, that moment, that oh, really the next like pivotal moment where you had the conscious yes. choice of like, you know what? I'm done. Yeah. Like I, I'm done yeah. with all of this. But it didn't happen. Right. What What happened that next day? That night, well, I want to say that night when I got into my apartment because my friends were like, please, please, please stay with us, stay with us. I was like, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine. Just totally numbed out. Yeah. Went to my apartment and just slid down the wall in the living room. I can see mm. it now and just started bawling like, oh my God, what did I just try to do? Oh my God. Like, what did I just do? I went to bed that night and I don't remember the next day. I just went into numb mode. Like, I'm just going to push that down. That didn't happen. I never even told people that story out loud until probably in 2017, 16, 15, maybe it was 15. I mean, much later in life, I was so ashamed about it and so embarrassed. And by the way, as I was driving down that road, because you talk about destiny, and at one point when I put my foot all the way on the gas pedal, my little Volkswagen Jetta, pouring rain, 30 mile an hour zone straight away, knowing a hairpin turns at the end. And I put it all the way down and the car just took off. And right before the turn, I heard this voice. It wasn't male. It wasn't female. It was just like this loud voice that said, what are you doing? And that's the thing that snapped me out of that mm. state I was in. And that's when I tried to slam on the brakes and take the corner, but it, my car just skid, went over the curb and slammed into a tree and to totaled the car. But you would say that voice felt like something else. I would like say it was wasn't. <laughs> I would say yeah. that was God, mm. the universe, a higher consciousness, my higher intelligence. I think it's all the same thing. We've talked about that before. There, you can call it by so many things, but that was something higher that that snapped me out of that. I've heard that voice maybe four times in my life. That was going to be my next question. Have you heard that voice? Yeah. So this is a this is going to be a bit of a, a of a spiritual woo-woo question for you as Libby the coach. Do you believe that we can access that voice as clarient is that the right word as clearly as you heard it without it being a big dramatic moment? Yes. And I believe the voice is quieter. So in big dramatic moments, I'm only speaking of my own experience where I needed like a booming voice, the booming voice came. And that's maybe only been, well, that was probably the only one booming voice. And then I heard the voice where it was just a very clear, I don't know how to describe it, like almost like audio, like when you have earbuds in, it's not in your left or right ear, it's just surround sound. Um, and then, so that's the second tier. And then the third tier is what happens all day long. When you take the deep breath, slow exhales, you get out of your head, out of your thinking mind, deep breath in, slow exhale out. And you're, you're at, thank you. It's not asking or begging or pleading for something. It's like, thank you for showing me what to do next. And it's either a thought or an image or an inspiration that says you need to, to go apologize to him right now, whether it's your son or your partner or your boss or whatever, or you need to go take a walk outside right now. It's a quiet knowing. How long did it take you to not tell that voice to shut up and take a hike to, to honor that? You know how I think so often people will hear that answer, go apologize to him and they'll go, well, no. Yeah. Or maybe after I finish these emails, you know, we have that other 
human thing that comes in to kind of derail it. And are you at a place in your life where you trust it and honor it and, and, and abide by that voice and that advice? So I absolutely trust it. I would say I, I try my best to listen to it and, and, and follow what it says, which is maybe 80% of the time, 75, because the habit of the other voice, which is like the editor, the one that jumps in and goes, you know, well, why would you do that? Or, well, she said that. I mean, don't you want to just say, you know, that beep, 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 that constantly goes on in your head. So I do my best, really. There's no finish line. Yeah, I agree. And do you think, though, that having the recognition of it and making it a practice, does it become more of a default when you 100% do it? Yes. That that is it. You're working the muscle. And so you want that to be the stronger muscle over the one, oh, don't do that or wait until later or stay in your holding a grudge or whatever that stuff. That's just like an old habit. You're just trying to break a bad habit and get into your new habit, healthier habit. Yeah. I talk about that a lot. It's muscles. Yeah. You know, our brain is an actual muscle. So that's a real muscle you are working on repeat all the time. But I believe our spirit is a muscle as well. And so the choices that you make in in that way, they get stronger or they get weaker, but they're always there. You know, it's kind of like your arm muscle, even if you don't do lift weights, it's there. It might be a little floppy and it might not be doing a big, you know, be bulging. But as soon as you give it attention and as soon as you do it over and over again, you will see something. It will be different. Did you know that OG is an NSF certified organic skincare company? Because they are committed to a seed to skin approach. That way you can know everything that you're putting on your skin is from the purest ingredients from the earth. I am a fan of all the OG products. My makeup bag looks like an OG makeup stand, (laughs) but my favorite right now is the sculpted face sticks. I love carnelian. It gives me this buildable, luminous, dewy glow, and I'm obsessed. You guys can find OG on all major social platforms from YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram at OG. That's O-G-E-E. You can also go to their website, www.og.com, and check out all their products. They're stunning. You will love having them on your countertop. All right, guys, let's get glowing with OG. I had a huge aha moment when I first started working with Joe at Blueberry Nutrition, and that is blueberry-nutrition.com. And when you go to their website, start by taking the quiz. It will give you an individualized program that's created just for you. So when I first started working with Joe, She had helped me find these small changes, these tiny habits that I could make for my overall health. At the time, I had been feeling dizzy and my blood pressure was low, and she really got to the root of the problem. Her whole method is to get you off of those vicious cycles of losing the same 20 pounds over and over again. Her method was designed to create lasting changes for you, changes that are doable, that come from small habit shifts. Go check out blueberry-nutrition.com and start your health journey today. So let's go back to that moment that you saw on the Maury show and you really knew and you told your friend and what did that feel like this first time 
that you said something to somebody that you love that was your truth in the world? What was that like? I was terrified because at that moment, again, I'm 27 now. You know, my friends had been through lots of boyfriends or partnerships. And I'm about to tell one of my best friends in the whole world that I think I might be gay. And well, I knew I was, but I was like, oh, I think that maybe the pot, you know, and I thought, what if she says, ooh, gross, or like, it's like, oh, okay, but inside just thinks that's disgusting. I, I just, you think all the worst possible things. And I probably prayed about it, you know, like, God, please give me the courage to say this. And then um, when I did tell her, she was just amazing. And I felt, such relief. I remember it was a girls weekend. So it was like a, a bunch of girls from Endicott. Maybe there were six of us all got together. We would do that every summer, get together for a weekend. And we were on someone's sailboat in the Marblehead Harbor, Marblehead, Massachusetts, cute little New England town, adorable. And I remember we were out there and I had already told my friend earlier in the day, she said, who, who else have you told? I said, no one. I haven't told anybody. Please don't tell anyone. She was like, oh no, no don't worry. And I just remember feeling such freedom. And that night we were all on, we were watching fireworks. It was July 4th weekend. And then a couple of us, like a couple of people jumped overboard just to like swim around in the harbor. And I remember thinking where normally maybe I wouldn't, I was like, I'm going to jump in, you know? And I just jumped in. I was floating on my back and the fireworks were going off. And I was just like, thank you, God. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Like I, I'm saved. I'm saved. Like I can cry. Yeah, it makes me want to cry. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to cry. Yeah. It's, cry. it's like, yeah, I felt like for yeah. the first time in my life, I can be myself. And, you know, one of my closest free. friends. Yeah. And I'm free. It's like, so it's amazing that I'm 55 mm. years old and I can still feel it like it was yesterday. So I, people that have kids that are gay or bi or trans, like I have such compassion, you know, like, I just want to help those people because it's, it's so worth finding love over worry, finding love over fear, finding love over, am I not good enough? Am I not worthy? It's the most incredible thing in the world. It's most love is the most powerful thing in the world. It's the most powerful thing in the world. That's why we do what we do. That's why we do what we do. And, you know, it's the thing I'll say till the cows come home that love is the answer. And people resist it and they're like, oh, it's corny because it's it's too simple. You know, we think it has to be so much harder than that. But it makes me weep too, because any moment of freedom, any time that the shackles are truly off your spirit, it's why you could you could probably smell the air in that story. You could probably hear whatever was going on around, right? You're in like the sonic boom of this experience. And I feel like we can choose that life. We can. And we can overcome really hard things. And I feel like, and I'll ask you this question, when you were able to do that, and when you had the courage to do that, and when you realize that you are embraced and loved and all the things that you were afraid of, what changed generally in your life after that? Did things feel different? Did the world look different? What was that like? I feel like I went from a black and white and gray world into a world of color. Technicolor. Technicolor is literally the name that just popped into my head. I felt like when I started dating at 27 years old, like I had kind of dated some guys, but ish, not really, you know? 
So when I actually felt like I have the freedom to date who I actually am interested in instead of pretending to be a straight person and interested in this guy, like if straight people only understood the ones that think you're being gay because it's a choice, it's like, that's so crazy. (laughs) Why would someone choose that life? It's going to be, or, you know, the, the, the hurdle. Like I wouldn't, if something came to me in my sleep and said, oh man, I'll wave my wand and make you straight tomorrow. No, thank you. I love who I am. I love my journey. I love who I am, you know, all of it. So I felt liberated. I felt free feeling like I was 15 Mm. going out on a date with someone I had a crush on for the first time. It was amazing. So in some ways, my life was like, 15 years behind everyone else, my friends, like 10 to 15. Like, so I went through stuff at 27 in my early 30s dating, like trying to figure everything out from scratch, you know? But freedom was the best thing. And thinking, wow, I get to be myself and people actually love me. If anything, people are more interested in me when they found out I was gay than prior to just like, oh, that's just lib, whatever. Wow, that needs to be highlighted in any category of anybody who is holding and carrying a secret. You know, that energy, and it's not your fault, right? Right. It's not your fault at all. That energy has its own life force, right? And it's with you everywhere. It's the little, you know, buddy on your shoulder. And like you just said, that was just always there. And I think that too is yet another great reason for us to find the courage (laughs) to tell our secrets, to not hold on to the shame to not take ownership of it because it's not true. Right. It's not, it's not real. Right. But I mean, it feels like it is in the moment. So you have now come out, you are working at Maury still, you got a lot going on in this moment. Like you said, if, I mean, I'm imagining me at 16, which was wow, quite elaborate (laughs) in my behavior. So let's pretend like that's you at that moment. How are you, how are you juggling? I'm assuming this quite a big job. And this kind of like electric experience that you're now in. I remember saying uh, what the publicist at Maury said, oh, I want to set you up with this guy. It was like, um, who's the artist? Roy Lichtenstein or something. It was like his son or something. Anyway, I was like, oh, thanks, but I'm gay. And she's like, oh my God, let me introduce you to Ju- Judy Nelson. Um, she's a friend of mine, which is Martina Navratilova's uh, wife. Mm. Anyway. I remember thinking like, wow, I live in New York City in the West Village. Hello. Like, which was one of the best places on earth. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there were like gay bars and and it was like an eclectic group. It wasn't just gay people. It was like everybody, you know, and everyone's accepted and the vibe and the energy and the clubs were like limelight and tunnel and the Roxy. It was like the the 90s, you know, in New York City. And I just felt high all the time, like high on life, a natural high. I loved Maury. He was a fantastic boss. I loved working at a TV show, which I I was obsessed with TV when I was a kid. And he was amazing. And I remember I would make plans for like meet people for drinks and then I would meet people for dinner and then I would meet people to go out and club like on a Thursday. That's so New York. It was so New York. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking, I love my life. Like I, I don't so ever So you didn't feel change. exhausted, burnt out? 
I felt high on life. I understood that that's why people do drugs to get what I'm feeling naturally right mm, now. I love that. And by the way, once I came out, the weight melted off of me. So even though I was an athlete in college, I mean, sorry, in high school, in college, I just gained so much weight, like 65 pounds or something, 60 maybe. I never dieted again. Once I came out, the weight over a period of years just melted off of me. And I literally, like literally, I was like my normal weight because I understood that. In hindsight, that was a subconscious barrier. I didn't want men to be attracted to me because I just didn't want to deal. I didn't want women to be attracted to me because that was just bad and so wrong. You didn't want to deal. At that I didn't want to deal with, with any of it. I just wanted to be the best friend, the best assistant, the best daughter, and and a massive people pleaser to have people like me. Mm. Okay, so take us through. Well, gosh, I just have to say this too because I cannot imagine. I mean, I can a little bit in my own little ways, but the courage that all of that took. And I think I now know this, but oh, I do want to ask you this too. Like after that moment, did you soon after tell your family and was everybody embracing of you in that way? Yes. Every single person I told, I could not ask for more support and love. And um, my mom and dad, I mean, my mom, my mom later told me she cried every night for six weeks months. She did tell me that much later in my life. And I'm glad that she did, you know, but she had to, I understood also there was something in me that understood she had to mourn the dream that she had for me, marrying the guy, the white picket fence, the 2.5 kids, whatever. She had to mourn that dream and allow, get comfortable with who I am. And, and I said, mom, look, because at one point I said, oh, I told Jill, and if she tells her mom, I just want you to know. She's like, Elizabeth, this is our family business. And I said, mom, I understand that. I understand this is new for you. It's new for me. I said, what I would say is I'm not going to come home and tell people I'm dating, you know, Tom when I'm dating, you know, Tiffany Tina. or something. Yeah, <laughs> Tina. That's what I was thinking. Tina was the first thing. Um, that's so funny. <laughs> that is so <laughs> random. Random. So I said, I'm not going to come home and lie about myself. This almost took Amen. my life. I didn't even tell my mom that until many years later. But like this has killed me since I was a kid. And now I get to be myself. So I'm going to be myself. I encourage you to watch news, read articles about it, whatever. If you see something about gay, lesbian, whatever, please educate yourself. I'm going to do it on my own. And if you have questions, let's talk about it. But I'm not going to lie about who I am. So I could go on and on. Everyone was great. Yes. Coming out. And I think I like that you mentioned that she had to grieve in her own pathway. And can that be okay with us in this world? You know, I mean, that's a generic question that we all have to ask that can we be okay for everybody's journey and how they need to process things in different ways, but that the real story is that you held the line on you, right? Yes. She can do that if that's her choice, but you don't have to plug into that choice that she made and change who you are anymore, right? Like it's two separate lanes. Yes. And I think that people can can wholly take that in, that those things can happen simultaneously in life. And that's important. Okay. So let's go back to, cause I want to talk a little bit about work stuff for you too. Take me through, you're at Maury, you're done. Maybe let's be, we'll do that for time's sake. Yes, we will. And uh, you worked at Rolling Stone for a while. Four years. Same thing. Are you a personal assistant or what are executive you doing there? assistant. Okay. Yeah. More personal assistant, but, but more executive assistant was the title. Yeah. And second assistant, by the way, not running the office, second assistant support. Was that when 
experience harder or easier than the first job? It was easier because I wasn't the one in charge. So with Mari, I was the one in charge and responsible for everything in his life and making sure everything was going smoothly. And I was the liaison between him and everyone. And then with at Rolling Stone, Mary McDonald, who I absolutely love and became a good friend of mine, a mentor and a good friend. She had been working with Jan for, I think, 20 years when I stepped into the picture. And she said, look, this is my career. I'm not going anywhere. So if you want to be the first assistant, that's not going to happen. Like, I love my job. I'm not going anywhere. I just need a support person. And I said, great, because I don't want to be the first assistant. I want to come in, do my work, go home. I want to be in comedy. I want to write for Saturday Night Live. So I want to do my little comedy stuff on the weekend and at night going for my goal. So this is perfect. And we got along like it was amazing because we understood each other's roles. We were both super happy where we were. And by the way, she's the one who modeled for me how to be an excellent assistant. And the only reason I got that job with Oprah, or one of the reasons, is because of the four years of training that I had with Mary McDonald O'Brien. And she now works with um, Bruce Springsteen and Patty, his wife. Don't tell Scott that, or he might be having you make a phone call. Okay. You know, Bruce is his everything. Noted. (laughs) So, okay, this is a good question, though. If you... You're going into there and you're saying, I, it's okay. I don't want to be the number one person. This is not my career path. This is where I am right now. And then you get an interview with, with Oprah's group, right? Are you now thinking, well, maybe this is my career path? Because now you're about to step into, it sounds like a, a, a another bigger role. Is there a point where you decide I am leaving comedy behind for now, putting it on the back burner? Like, where's that transition for you? Okay. I was working at Rolling Stone. It was three years in. Through Jan's partner, I got an informational interview with the head writer of Saturday Night Live. So I'm thinking, this is it. I'm just going to walk in there and get a job. I mean, I was so naive and, you know... And uh, so no, I you're so you. I'm so me. I'm going to get it. I'm just going to go in and get it. That's mm-hmm. true. So I go in. I have this informational interview with the head writer of Saturday Night Live. And I leave there thinking, oh, I'm never going to work here. I've been dreaming about this since I was 25. I think I was 33 at that time. And I thought, I'm never going to work here. These are all white guys in the, like their 30s and 40s who went to Ivy League schools and have a ton of writing experience. I'm none of those things. And I don't even have the writing experience. So that day I realized like I'm giving up on that dream. That's not happening. So then I started thinking, well, I'll be a comedy writer for the Rosie O'Donnell show because I think she's really funny. This was when she was at the top of her game. She's gay. I'm gay. She respects kids and older people. I respect kids and older people. And we have the same sense of humor. So I can easily write for her. So that was my new goal. And I started sending writing submissions to the head writer. And I did that for 10 months without getting one reply. And it was a block from Rolling Stone on um, Rockefeller Center and Rolling Stones one block away. I would FedEx to the head writer. Oh my gosh. One block away, my on my Rolling Stone stationery, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, telling everyone I know, I'm going to write for Rose O'Donnell within one year. Do you know anyone there? It was like super networking. I love that. I love that you consider you. That's been a consistent theme. Yeah. You will say out to the world, yes. hey, I'll, I'm okay. You can connect me. Yeah. And I will say that about you. You are such a great connector you've, you've taken that torch and carried it on. You know, I think you do that for people too, and realize like the power that can happen when you put it out into the world. So continue. Yes. Thank you. And you, you the same. I mean, we're totally mirroring that for each other. Uh, You are a super connector. So finally, after 10 months of sending writing submissions and getting no reply, one day I'm taking the subway to work to Rolling Stone. 
still working there. And I said this prayer and I said, okay, God, clearly you do not want me to write at Saturday Night Live or Rosie O'Donnell because you know how badly I want it. And, and I've been sending writing submissions and just nothing is happening, like nothing. So whatever I am supposed to do, every atom, cell, and molecule in my body, mind, soul, and spirit is open to it. Show me what it is, shine a big fat spotlight on it. So I'm clear, this is what I'm supposed to do and I'll do it. Amen. And I release that prayer to the universe. And Kelly, I swear to you, it was like five weeks later. It was on a Friday. I'm closing up my computer at Rolling Stone. Like that was when AOL, so you have to like shut down all these applications. And as I'm just about to power off, I hear you've got mail and (laughs) something in me, that voice not the booming voice, not the medium voice, but the quiet voice said, you should check that email. And in my mind, I thought, okay, I should check that email. That's the first thing. Then my mind goes, oh, you're meeting friends for margaritas. Like you're going to be, but I was like, no, something in me said I should check it. So I opened all everything back up and it was from someone in this networking group called New York Celebrity Assistance, which were assistants to high profile people in New York. Anyway, she sends this job description said, hey, this recruiter in Chicago is in search of a chief of staff executive assistant to a high profile person. Responsibilities include long list. The first thing said, coordinate private plane aviation team pilots. Second thing, coordinate hair and makeup team. And immediately the booming voice said, oh my God, that is Oprah. Meaning <laughs> me. You I'm knew. Like, I knew. Mm. That is Oprah Winfrey because Jenny Jones and Jerry Springer cannot afford a private plane because they're both based in Chicago, you know, hair and makeup means you're on TV. You would narrow it down to three. And I, I knew in a nanosecond that that is why the next thought that came in was that's why you didn't get the job at Saturday Live or Rosie because you're meant to do this. You knew. I knew in that moment that when I read through the email, that all got downloaded like boom, boom, and boom in that order. This is Oprah. And that is why you didn't get the job at Saturday Night Live and Rosie, because you're meant to do this. I have to ask, are you scared to apply for this job? I was excited. I emailed okay. the woman back who sent it because it didn't say who it was for. And I said, um, Trish Peters was her name. I said, hey, Trish, the only person on earth that I would pick up and move my, like at that point, fabulous life, right? In New York City. The only person on earth that I would pick up and move my life for is Oprah Winfrey, dot, dot, dot. And then she wrote back and said, well, maybe you should consider packing your bags. So then I thought, okay, confirmed. That's who this is for. That Monday, I sent my resume to the recruiter in Chicago. She called me right away. We had a chat. Then we set up another call for the next day, had a formal phone interview. Then she set me up with the um, president of Harpo and the director of HR. Three days later, had a phone call with them. They said, Oprah's going to be in New York next week. Can you meet her at blah, blah, blah? I said, yes. And then- And you got the job. And I got the job. I get to this really nice hotel in New York early. I'm about to meet Oprah. And I do want to say this one part because I think it's important. My mom said, Elizabeth- If she asks about your personal life, I don't think you should tell her you're gay. And I said, mom, I get why you're saying that because you want me to have this job with Oprah. I want this job with Oprah. But if she's not comfortable having a gay person as her chief of staff, then I'm not the right person for this job. And she's like, you're right, you're right, you're right. And by the way, my mom quickly became super accepting. Like everyone in town calls her if they have a gay kid, like, can I take you to lunch? Because I need to talk with you. She's amazing. So 
I get to this hotel early. I go into the corner of the lobby and I say a prayer and I say, wow, thank you, God, for this opportunity. This is amazing that I'm about to meet with Oprah Winfrey. And if I am meant to have this job, make it clear to her and to me. And if I'm not meant to have this job, well, thank you for this opportunity. This is amazing. It helped me to be calm, cool, and confident and 100% myself. And again, in deep breath, slow exhales, like getting in that zone. And then I walked in to the meeting. That prayer and prep work was everything because it got me out of my head and up into alignment with flow, what you call flow. So I wasn't worried like, what if I don't get it? Or what am I going to say? I was set the tone to get into flow. So then Tim Bennett, the president of Harpo came in, Oprah came in. Eventually, you know, we all sat down and we talked for about 40 minutes. And at some point, in about 30, 30 minute point, she said, um, what's your plan for your life? No, what's your plan? And I said, what do you mean? What's my plan? And she goes, you know, your life plan, what's your plan for your life? And in that moment, I thought, do I tell her the truth or do I say what you think you're supposed to say in an interview with Oprah Winfrey? And I went with the truth. And I said, well, honestly, you know, five weeks ago, I thought I was going to be writing for Rosie O'Donnell. I've been sending submissions. No one ever answered after 10 months. I said this prayer on the subway. Okay, God, clearly you don't want me to do this. So every atom, cell, and molecule in my body, mind, soul, spirit's open to it. Show me what it is. Be clear and I'll do it. And here I am sitting with you having a glass of Chardonnay. So if you leave this interview and you feel like she's the one for the job, then I would be honored to take it because it matches my experience as an assistant with what I'm passionate about. And what I'm passionate about is what you're doing in the world for women and children, the betterment of women and children in the world. But if you leave this interview and you feel like, ah, she's nice, but she's not the right one for the job, that's okay too. Don't question it. Yeah, Mm. because that means there's a better chief of staff coming for you, like right around the corner. And if this isn't what God has planned for me, I cannot wait to see what's next. Me too. Um, Meanwhile, (laughs) that is, okay, so it's the most baller energy ever, but it's also the most flow energy ever, right? Because it would be so tempting to want to scramble at a get, to want to scramble at a grab, to pre-hold something that we we don't yet own right? That's what we all do. We, we have a thing. We go, I really would, this would be great. I really love this thing. And we pre, we pre grab, right? And what you're saying is you didn't pre grab. You said, I'm, I'm the servant in this whole experience. I'm the servant of something much bigger than me. And so whatever that is supposed to be, I am here for it. And I feel like something in that release is exactly the, the, it is the magic piece. That is the magic piece that then changes things in such a profound way. And it is freaking powerful. So, okay. It's like that, that's that metaphor that people use. Like if you see a goldfish and you put your hands, you try to grab the goldfish, it's going to squirm out of your hands. But if you just ease your hands into the water, palms open, spread apart, it will come and just swim in between your hands. Just hang out there because we're all energy. So grabby energy and desperate energy is like, ooh, get me away from that. What is that? But like, hey, I'm here. It's cool. Let's do it or not. Works every it's, time. Yeah. It works every time. Yeah. Okay. So the I love, God, this is a conversation I could have for days, is the the grabby energy versus the, the flowy energy. And can I just also say, everybody does it. I mean, everybody does the grabby energy on occasion or all the time or who knows. Like this isn't a you know, a mandate on people. 
we all do it, but the acknowledgement of it and the recognition of it and that true sort of like, this isn't me. I am here as the servant to the highest thing. I'm here as the servant to love. And so it isn't really for me to decide. It's for something bigger than that. And I can go with that. And then what, I mean, you are a testimony to the magic that happens. I am a testimony, Scott. I mean, so many people in my life, when we have that conversation and we go into that deep place, I could, this stuff happen. This is the thing that continually occurs when that choice gets made in that in that way. So I'm going to guess you got the job. And well, after I said, so, you know, and if this isn't what God has planned for me, I can't wait to see what's next. And we just held eye contact like 1001, 1002. And she looked at Tim and said, okay, Tim, let's bring her to Chicago. In the moment. Yes. But I will say she said it. And I just thought, because when we held eye contact, this is my experience of it. You'd have to ask Oprah what hers is. I felt a knowing. I felt like, ah, it it was like, that's me being honest and truthful and you will receive that or not, you know? And she, I think, sensed me like, wow, this person is honest and truthful. Like, I see you, I hear you, what you say, right? And we recognized each other in that space. And when she said, okay, Tim, let's bring her to Chicago, Tim said, well, well, do you want okay. to wait a he minute? Like, yeah, he was like, let's slow this, uh, you know, speedboat down a little bit. He said, why don't we bring Libby out to Chicago? She's never been there. She can meet our folks, get a feel for the city and just like, let's start there. And she was like, all right, great. Libby, see him in Chicago. She gave me a big hug. They had to leave because they were going to the plane to fly back to Chicago to do something the next day. And I left that hotel, which is in Midtown. I'm not going to say what it was. And where normally I would have gotten in a cab or on the subway to go down to the West Village, I thought, I know I just got that job and I'm going to walk home because I never, ever, ever want to forget this moment. And I started walking down Fifth Avenue and I walked past Rockefeller Center, which if anybody's ever been to Rockefeller Center where there's the ice skating rink and it's, you know, it's lit up at night. And I stood there and I looked up and I just, that's where Saturday Night Live and Rosie O'Donnell's show were. And I just said, thank you for not responding to me (laughs) because this is the dream I never could have dreamed of. And I walked the whole way home to the West Village, just remembering the air and it was fall and it was October and it was crisp. And I thought my whole life is about to change for the better. And it did. You know, I ended up going to Chicago, blah, 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 doing the interviews. When I got to O'Hare Airport, I spent a night there and did a whole day of interviews, went back to O'Hare Airport to fly home to New York. And I went into the bathroom stall and started bawling because I thought I just got that job. I mean, I met a ton of people. It was grilled. You can imagine coming in as her chief of staff executive assistant. What year is this? That was um, October or of 2000. So it was 21 years ago this fall. I want to ask you something that is something that I have recognized. And if you don't want to talk about it, that is okay. Because this is just totally my perception. As a viewer, so obviously, okay, you're there, you get the job. It's a big, big job. I mean, we can all (laughs) guess the kind of download that you have to experience, but like two years in or or even three years in when you're in a flow and you're, you're sort of locked in and you have this, you are the person that's Oprah and then you're the person, right? Is that correct? Yes. I told you this and I, I stand by this, that as a viewer, as a very devoted viewer of the Oprah show, and Scott will tell you this. He called me. Did you know this story? Oh my gosh, I have to tell you this story. I think I've told you. But the first time he called me for a date, he called me at four o'clock. I was living in New York. 
And the only thing I ever did every single day was watch Oprah between four and five. Pre-DVD, I just didn't feel like doing like VCR stuff, whatever. Everybody in my whole life knew, don't call Kelly between four and 5 p.m. At four o'clock, I get a phone call. I don't know the number. I pick it up. It's Scott. He's like, hey, I'm Scott. And I'm like, you know what? Listen, I'm really, really, really want to talk to you, but this is not the hour. So I have to do this. And I had a whole thing. I would get strawberries and chocolate milk and like New York's so intense. It was like my time to just shut it down. But he called back at five and he'd watched the episode. And I knew in that moment that that was somebody that I would want in my life. Okay. But all of that, I just say, I know, right? I think, and a lot of people are going to agree with me on this. Something was happening on that show. Obviously, there was this, there was an intensity, a global influence, a thing that I have yet to experience that I have yet to experience with so many people collectively at the same time. To me, it was the highest level of energy that could be transmitted through the medium of television that has ever been witnessed in any of our lifetimes. I know y'all might be like, that's a big statement, but it is. And for anybody who wasn't there during that or didn't plug into it, you can't really know, but it's it was something, right? So I can imagine you felt that, but were you aware of your, your you, Libby Moore's impact in that vibration collectively? No. Okay. Definitely not. Did you understand that vibration was happening in the world or can you not see it or feel it when you're inside of it? Well, I would say, you know, I started watching the Oprah show when I was in um, 1986, I think is when it went national. And that's when I started watching it. Similar to you, I was loved it, just loved it. Actually started watching her on People Are Talking when I lived in Maryland. That was out of Baltimore. So that was even before she went to Chicago. So I would watch her with Richard Sher on People Are Talking. Mm. When I was in it, I was just trying to keep my head above water. It was, you know, I ended up managing a team of five assistants and together as a team, keyword together as a team, we managed, coordinated, scheduled her entire business, personal life. And I was the key liaison between her and all points of her life. It didn't mean I was running those businesses. It's just everything filtered through the executive office. And then I was running that. So it was not even keeping my head bobbing above water. I felt like I had a straw to get air. My whole body and head was under the water, but I had straw to get air. And it, and we were just maxed out, like all of us constantly. And and then I ended up traveling with her, you know, everywhere. And it I, was, I won the career lo- lottery with that job. I mean, it was unbelievable. I told people in episode one, the story of you telling me to go look at the tree that Dr. Angelou had told you, like you're saying with this straw sticking out under the water to try to, just just stay in the game. And, you know, this is something I have, I have mentioned to you. There's a Bible verse. I'm not religious by any kind of direct standard, but I believe in a higher power, higher being. And the story that you told about the first time that you're meeting Oprah and that you acknowledge this thing, this, I said, I'm here if it's the right thing and I'm gone if it's not, you know, like that we can acknowledge this energy. She talked about that enough that I think as a, as a viewer, I believe she's also in that energy or she agrees with that energy. So there's a Bible verse that says, when two or more of you come together in my name, I will be there. And I think me, because I know you and your energy, I think that there was a thing that happened in that world. And to to your point, a team. I mean, it it wasn't just the two humans, you two humans, but that there was something about the agreement that got made also that 
we are starting this thing in this energy of it's not us guys. <laughs> like we are the servants of spirit, right? We're not the, the, the deciders and that how that collectively came to all of our lives and into all of our beings. And I know it was hard for you because we've, we've talked about this. Like, could you know that? Probably not. But I still, I believe deeply that there is something to that, you know, that there is something to what can happen when we make that agreement. And I almost wonder if now with LoveX Global and how you work with companies now, can you identify that as one of the great causes of why the Oprah Winfrey show was so powerful to all of us, that it was rooted in a belief that love is the guiding principle? I would say that that is why it resonated with everybody around the world is because of you just articulated it perfectly. And Oprah was, is the vessel for that. We all have the capacity to be a vessel or a channel or whatever you want to say, portal for that energy. And she loves it and believes it and lives it. It's who she is. So that deep interest in me and that her, who she is, when we came together and met at that interview meeting, and when I said what I said, which came from a very truthful, honest, love place, like love places is me being truthful. She connected to that. And that for me, what felt like us holding eye contact for like 1001, 1002 was like, ah, I got it. I see you. Yeah, I see you. And she, when I started working with her because of her vibration, I like to call it this higher, you know, frequency, this higher, like she, everyone around her just raises up to meet her there, you know? So she, well, the bar is high and boom, it can be higher and higher and higher. So you just by working there, just by watching two tapings a day, you start to listen to these stories of extraordinary people and ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And you just start to realize, oh my God, we all have that power within us. That's why you do flow. That's why I do love X. It's like, how do we remember who we are and the power that we have within us? Mm. That is what she's brilliant at. And, and why people resonate with her so much is because she's so honest and open and shares her own difficulties with life, you know, whether it's personal or professional, and we can all relate to that. We want real people. We see ourselves in her and vice versa. Yeah. I think that was powerful. It was powerful to experience it. I mean, I was in my twenties, I think at the height of that energy field, you know, and it was really left a mark on how I look at the world. And I know that through her own acknowledgement of this, like making a choice to not put trash out anymore, you know, to just not do that anymore. And that we can elevate this thing and people will be okay with it was like, yeah, we're all okay with it. And we're on board with it. And I might be here doing this for that very reason in so many ways. You know, I think we joke that we got our degree in Oprah, <laughs> like our spiritual degrees in Oprah. And there's another person that sets a bar and that's you. I feel that way deeply about you. And I can, t I can say that across the board of experiences that I've had with you, when you come into a space, you raise the energy bar into a place that is different than what existed before you entered it. So I can only imagine what it feels like when the two of you are anywhere, <laughs> because it's got to be something spectacular, but you are that person way beyond a shadow of a doubt. I've witnessed it with my own eyes many, many times. Thank you. If you had to tell this audience a couple of stories that stand out to you as being the most uh, relevant to this flow community. Tell, give me one of those. 
here's one that pops into my head. When I was sending the writing submissions to the head writer at the Rosie O'Donnell show and not getting any reply, and of course I was telling everybody I wanted to work there, my mom said to me, now keep in mind, this is six months before I got the job with Oprah. Six months before that, my mom said to me, Elizabeth, why don't you send your resume to Oprah? So when you talk about flow- This is this is one of the best flow stories I have, and I have a lot of them. So when you're in flow, you have to pay attention to everything, right? You have to pay attention to your partner, your mom, your kids, people standing in the grocery store line, like what you hear on the radio. It's about being Talk aware. about that. Talk about that's the breadcrumbs. Okay. Following the breadcrumbs. Okay. So my mom said to me, look, no one's replying to you um, at, from the Rosie O'Donnell show. Why don't you send your resume to Oprah? You love her show and you know you love her magazine. That year in 2000, so my mom said that in May of 2000, April 17th, a month before my birthday, April 17th, 2000, the premiere of O Magazine hit the newsstands on my birthday, April wow. 17th, 2000. Wow. I took the day off from work. I read the whole magazine cover to cover. It took me four hours because I'm a slow reader and probably ADD. So it took me four hours. I loved it. I was like, this is the best women's magazine that has ever existed on earth. This is a real magazine for women about empowerment and encouragement. Okay. So I was telling everyone I knew about O Magazine, how much I loved it. My mom said, why don't you send the resume to Oprah? And I go, mom, whoever is Oprah's assistant, why would they ever leave that job? Number one. And number two, I, I love New York. I love my apartment in the West Village. My girlfriend's here. My friends are here. I don't want to leave New York. So the breadcrumb, the sign came to me through my mother and I just shut it down. Had I been open to the possibility, I thought, you know what? Why not? I'll just send it. If they don't respond, they don't respond. But why not? That would be an amazing opportunity. But I shut it down. I didn't. But six months later, it came back through that email, through Trish, through New York Celebrity Assistance, blah, blah, blah. And I end up getting the job. So Back to your question earlier, are we creating our life or is it destiny? Was it destiny that I was meant to go there? Now I have a second story about flow. Okay, that, okay, this, ah, we really do need like a 10 hour. We should do like a whole season that's just Libby and Kelly conversations. I talk to people about this a lot, the Harry Potter effect. If you don't know this Harry Potter effect, it's when he was, he gets into Hogwarts and um, his the people that he's living with don't want him to know that and they're not nice and it's his aunt and uncle and his parents are gone and all this stuff. And Hogwarts starts magically sending hundreds, thousands, a million letters to the house and they're coming in the window and the chimney and like they take over the whole house and the whole house is completely covered with them because no matter what, no matter how, your destiny will call. And it will get louder and it will get louder and it will get louder. And it might start with your mom's comment and then the next little thing and the next little thing. And to your point, the more open we are, the faster we we get to the place. But no matter what, you can rest assured that the Harry Potter effect will happen. Like it, it's coming for you, you know, one way or the other, no matter how many aunt and uncle stinky heads that you have around you trying to block it. Okay. So I just always want to remind people of the power of that and that they can have faith in it. You know, that you don't have to be in a hypervigilant state all the time. You can kind of put the pieces together, but it will come. It will happen. Okay. So give me one more story. One more story for the okay people in the back. So um, when I was a little kid, uh, I was I loved watching TV. We had one little black and white TV and it had an antenna where you'd have to put tinfoil on the antenna to get a good you know signal. 
Anyway, there was a lightning storm. It hit a tree, which then hit a lamppost, which then hit the circuit that the TV was pl- plugged into. So our TV basically blew up is what we called it. You know, like it was just dead. And my mom said, you know what? We're not going to get a new TV because it's whatever room it's in is always messy and you kids fight over what to watch. So we're just not going to get a TV. And I was devastated because I love TV. Well, we then started going to my uh, my grandparents' house after school because they lived like a quarter mile from our school. So we would walk there and we'd watch TV after school. So have milk and Oreos and watch the Mike Douglas show, which was my favorite show. You're probably too young to know this, but it was basically a daytime talk show. And he was the number one daytime talk show. And I was probably about 14. So in the late 70s, I'm thinking, early 80s. I was born in 76. So I missed that. But Donahue was on my radar. Yes, this is before Donahue. And he would have celebrities on, actors, actresses. And every once in a while, he would go out of the studio and go to someone like Burt Reynolds, you know, some actor, actresses vacation home in Hawaii. And he'd have on his little Hawaiian shirt. And I was just like, wow, look at their vacation home. I loved it. So this is a daytime talk show. And this guy was the number one daytime talk show, my favorite show on TV. So when the t- t- the TV blew up in our yard, well, Alex and I and Maureen and Ann, we'd play out in the yard. And I was very creative. And we were always out in the yard and make believe and like BMX bikes and making little BMX tracks and all this stuff. And I remember being by myself and I was maybe 14, 13, 14 years old. And I was pretending like Mike Douglas, the talk show host, was interviewing me at my vacation home in Hawaii. Now I'm 14. We're in Berlin, Maryland, population 3000. There's a cornfield at the back of our yard. And I walk over to the cornfield and I take my hand swooping at the corn, like off to my left, like, here's Mike. This is where I surf every morning at my vacation home in Hawaii. And I'm pointing at the Pacific Ocean, which is cornfield in Berlin, Maryland. And I go, this is where I surf every morning at 6 a.m. with my friends. Isn't it beautiful? And Mike's going, yeah, that's beautiful. Wow. What a great place to live. Okay. I'm 14. Cut to 30 years later. I'm 30. I'm 44 years old. I'm 44 now. Uh, interesting mm-hmm. synchronicity. Mm-hmm. I'm 44. I'm with Oprah in Hawaii, in Maui, where she has a second home. And the waves were massive that day. And I said, You have got to come down and check out the surf. I, I mean, it's just unbelievable because she's up on some a mountain or something. So drive her down there. We go to this big surf spot, P- Hupika. I can never pronounce it, Hupika, something like that. And we're standing on the cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean at all these surfers. And I'm pointing, going, look at all those surfers. Isn't that amazing? Okay. (laughs) Hello. 30 years after I did that in our backyard in Berlin, Maryland, at a cornfield, pretending like I'm talking to the number one talk show host, which is Mike Douglas. But now I'm 44 and I am talking to the number one talk show host in the country in 144 (laughs) countries around the world, her show was, saying to Oprah, Look at that. So if that isn't destiny, I don't know what is. And my mom saying, why don't you send your resume to Oprah and me not listening? But then it came six months later. So I, I'm a, I, now I guess I do believe in destiny now that I hear those stories out loud. When you tell the stories, it's funny. That was one of our first questions. And it's like, I think we've confirmed it, that there is destiny Yes, <laughs> that it is. I believe it now. When, when you were telling that story, I was thinking, well, first of all, it's so it's mind blowing and not because it's so confirming. We always do the like, whoa, you used to tell me I would be like, isn't that crazy? And you'd go not crazy. 
You know, it was correcting. It's not crazy. If you decide that this is life and this is how it is meant to be, and you are meant to feel love and you are meant to feel inspired and you are meant to fulfill your destiny and everybody has one, then it's not crazy. (laughs) You know, it's just in perfect order all the time. I was thinking about my parents, we had a detached garage and the top of the garage was this old attic. And same thing, like we were constantly getting grounded from the TV as usual. My dad would put actually a lock on the two little holes on the part that would go in the in the wall. You know how a plug has two holes in it? Mm-hmm. He would put a lock on it, like a key lock, and then he'd take the key to work. <laughs> so you couldn't plug the TV in, which was, by the way, genius. I mean, on so many levels. God, I wish I could do that right now. But he would do that. And so we would do all these things. And this one time, my brother and I found like all this stuff in a trash bin. And we like had a school and we had a candy store and we would do different stuff up there. But one time I said, I'm a motivational speaker. And I would tell people in third grade that that's what I wanted to be. And I remember a teacher laughed. I mean, not, I don't think she was meaning to be cruel, but like that's hysterical. This little, probably she thought cute. I mean, because I think we do that accidentally with kids all the time. Like, oh my God, that's so cute. P.S. Tony Robbins would have been the quote unquote motivational speaker of the world. I did not know him. My parents are academics. That wasn't something that was in my purview at all. The most motivational thing I had was the Episcopal church. Like I, you know, there was no big something. Where did I get that? I have no idea, but I would ask the neighborhood kids to come over. I'd stand up in the front of my little upstairs attic and, you know, try to motivate them to do their math homework or be nice to their parents. Oh my God. So, right. But you think about these things and you're like, wow, what? There is something that has to be that's planted in all of us. That's a, the seed of our destiny. And it is really, really powerful. And I think your story in particular just drives it home on so many levels. And also, and I think you say this a lot that that's a, you, you had a dream job that does not define you by any means. It was a moment and it's a job and it's a thing, but it's a pretty spectacular achievement and a really uh, meaningful one. And you didn't go to Harvard. You didn't have to do, you know, I think we can just get so big into some of these, like, I have to do something a certain way to get to X. And I don't think that's true. I think one thing you and I would agree on it's no, but you do have to, you do have to love yourself And you do have to pick yourself and you do have to agree that you agree with something bigger than you to move it forward. Do you, does that resonate with you? A hundred percent. Absolutely. I have found that my life has been dramatically better because I choose to align with this higher, higher power. I mean, I call it God in my life. I don't like you. I'm not a religious person. I am such a believer. To me, that's everything. Me too. And and the deep to me the deep breath slow exhale aligns you with that higher power so you get out of your head this brain with like 20 hamster wheels going constantly and up into a higher intelligence that will tell you exactly what to do next mm. or guide you. Thank you very much. And I've been ending every episode with what I am calling the 3 M's moment. I'm going to ask my guest if they can tell me I did this with Scott on the on episode 2. Can you tell me what the three M's are in the flow world? Uh, Move, munch, meditate. (laughs) Yeah. Guys, see, my friends, come on now. Yes, they're munch, move, meditate or whichever order you want to put them in. But what I want uh, our guests to tell everybody, or if it's just me, I'm telling them what was my move that I did that day? What was my breakfast or what was the thing I ate for breakfast? And what's our meditation? So I'm going to leave you with the meditation for the end because I really want you to 
tell everybody that the one you've, that you always tell me, and I think share with your clients and you use. So what was your munch this morning? I got up, I meditated for 20 minutes and then I made coffee and I had um, a rice cake with peanut butter and a banana and a little cinnamon sprinkled on the top. Yum. That actually sounds really good. I'm going to add that to my list because it's so funny. Talk about destiny. One of my conundrums is I get so bored with breakfast things. I have that. I I'm thinking we all do this, the same thing every single day. That's me. So yeah. I'm hoping that the more people that tell me this, I'll get inspiration. So I'm putting that one on my list. Okay. What was your move today? How did you move your body? I went for a hike with you in the most gorgeous forest in Vancouver. Kitsilon. That's our favorite. Yeah. I call that church. That's yes. my church. Yeah. And all right, guys. So I'm going to ask Libby to just walk you through her prayer meditation technique, can I call it that, Mm -hmm. that you taught me that I see you use often and that we actually did prior to even starting this podcast at all. So will you share that with everyone? Well, I always like to start with three deep breaths, slow exhales to get us out of our thinking mind and up into alignment with our higher self, higher vibration, higher frequency, higher intelligence, God, source, universe, Allah, whatever you call it, that's where the breath is pulling you up into. And then once by you, you've done the third exhale, you're pretty relaxed, relax your shoulders on the on each exhale. And what I'd like to do is share this one. I think this might more resonate more. So before I'm about to do a coaching call with someone or maybe even have a conversation with someone, and in particular, this works really well if you're about to have a difficult conversation with someone, your partner, your kids, your manager, whoever it is, an employee, you do the three deep breath, slow exhales. And for example, I'll take you, Kelly. So I'll say, I'll do the deep breath, slow exhales with my eyes closed. And I'll say, thank you for being in this conversation with us. Thank you for flowing through us. Thank you for flowing from your heart to my heart, my heart to Kelly's heart, Kelly's heart to your heart and back around again. Whatever Kelly most needs to hear in this conversation, thank you for speaking from my heart to her heart, heart to heart, energy to energy. And whatever I most need to hear in this conversation. Thank you for speaking through Kelly from her heart to my heart, my heart to your heart, your heart to her heart and back around again. And then I imagine this white light of loving energy flowing through the three hearts. And when I say your heart, I mean this higher consciousness, this higher energy of love. We're we're intentionally bringing it to a higher vibration. So I imagine that white light of love circular in the alternating currents, which I think has something to do with Nikola Tesla and everything that he discovered about alternating currents. And then I just really say, oh, I say for the better good, for the betterment of everyone involved. Mm. So it's whatever Kelly most needs to hear. Thank you for speaking from my heart to her heart. Whatever I most need to hear. Thank you for speaking from Kelly's heart to my heart for the greater good of everyone involved. And then I just release it and go into the thing, the conversation, whatever it is. It's every time. And thank you for that teaching me that because I use it too. I don't do a call, a meeting. And and I can actually say that when I have, because I've gotten busy or I've gotten in my, you know, oh, I just need to get this done. It's different. You know, I think it, that is the key is I can know, I can feel a tangible difference. So tell everybody where they can find you if they wanted to follow you. I mean, are you on Instagram? Can they email you? And what type of things are you available to the world if they wanted Easiest place to find me, libbymore.com. 
It's Libby Moore, L-I-B-B-Y-M-O-O-R-E.com. And you can email me there. And I occasionally do LoveX talks there. I used to do it monthly. Now it's just organic whenever I'm feeling it. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I do have Libby Moore Gypsy Tour, which I'm thinking of just shutting down. I don't know. It it feels done to me. I do have LoveX Global on Instagram. Um, And that's it. I'm not on Facebook or Twitter, thank God, or any of that. Can you be hired to give talks? Oh, thank you. Yes. (laughs) Oh, no, I was just curious. I love giving talks. It's my favorite thing to do. I love giving talks at companies and corporations and um, doing team coaching. It's my favorite thing in the world to do. So you are open to, if somebody wanted to or cared to reach out for you for that, that is an, 100%, that's an yes. email and somebody will respond. Right on. Yes. That's amazing. I love it. Libby, thank you. Thank you. What a joy. Anytime. I feel like you're going to have to come back because I do think we had at least 175 more stories that we want to tell. Truly. Yeah. Thank you. You are a gift to me, to this world, and you will be to this audience. Thank you, Kelly. And thank you for all the listeners. Thank you. I really appreciate this. We will see you next Monday.